In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab, Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong, and let us fight bravely for our people and for the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. They went to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open. 2 Samuel 10, I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, that your word is living and active and it speaks to us now. Uh, please uh, help us to set aside any distractions that we might rejoice at and tremble at your word and be shaped into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ on account of it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, sometime in uh, mid to late primary school, I'm certain, where for me and my friends, one of the uh, obviously most enthralling topics of conversation was, of course, regarding the worst possible way to die. Being boys, of course, there was always um, that sense of competitive one-upmanship, and so the aim was to win kudos by coming up with the most ridiculously over-the-top death scenario that would out-horrible all the others, and I see this sometimes in my own sons. Uh, 
So after a while, you get something like, the worst possible way to die would be bungee jumping off a cliff when the cord breaks and you get mashed on the rocks as you go down and land in a pool of vinegar, which happens to be infested with piranhas who eat your arms and you get hit by a meteorite. And then when the ambulance is on the way to the hospital, it crashes, crashes into a truck full of horse manure under which you suffocate. Awesome. That kind of thing. Uh, now, I would not at all be surprised if uh, in psychology there's some label for this developmental phase in which children maybe apprehend their own mortality, and that for boys in particular, maybe that's sort of part of how that process takes place. I don't know. You can ask a psychologist later. But you see, if you ignore the childishness of it, there's actually a bit of sense, would you believe, to that process. See, one of the ways I reckon we're wired is to find the absolute limit to find rock bottom, especially when it comes to really difficult and unpleasant things that we might have to come to terms with. And when we find that bottom line, well, at least we know that that's as bad as it can get and hopefully, therefore, convince ourselves that we will never hit such an extreme. You see, no matter how bad my death and its surrounding circumstances might be, well, I'm pretty sure I could always think of something worse, you see, and so in that way, understandably, I could comfort myself. It's just a natural sort of way of processing things. And I mention that today because the Word of God actually affords us that same opportunity. For in today's living and active Word of God for us in 2 Samuel chapter 10, we learn about what is truly the absolute worst possible way in which one can face the reality of death. And of course, therefore, how to ensure it doesn't happen. Now, you might not have thought that on first reading. Why is Ben saying this? I didn't really pick it. Well, that's good. Stay with me. We're going to get stuck in it together and you can see, you know, if you're sort of with me by the end. Now, our passage begins with people questioning the good motives of God's chosen king, David. Uh, we get the scene setting, I suppose, from verse 1. It says, In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. Now, hopefully you all remember from last week that David, now thoroughly established as God's chosen king over a united Israel, is someone who, once he's kind of all set up, sought to show kindness. And he sought to show kindness to his former enemies who were yet still part of God's people. And, and it was a very heartwarming passage last week, wasn't it, when he showed kindness to Mephibosheth. What's significant here is that now David is seeking to expand the circle of God's blessing beyond Israel and into the nations. And that should not surprise us at all, because we know, and as of 2 Samuel 7, we know that David now knows that the Davidic kingdom had in fact become part of the means by which God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham, which of course was to eventually bring blessing to people from all nations. Hence, David is now seeking to show kindness to people beyond Israel's borders to the Ammonites, as it happens. Now, it so happened that King Nahash of the Ammonites was a real nasty piece of work. If you can remember all the way back uh, to the, the time of Saul in 1 Samuel, once upon a time, Nahash had subjugated a significant city, I think it was Jabesh Gilead, 
And he gave the threat of gouging out every man's right, every man and woman's right eye. But presumably, during David's time of exile later on, when he was fleeing from Saul and he pretended to be a Philistine, presumably sometime during that period, he'd been shown some kind of favour from Nahash. And David, just like God, looks for occasion to show mercy. That's where his heart inclines. He looks for an occasion, almost an excuse to be merciful rather than to show judgment. And here he's got one with the recently enthroned Hanan, who presumably is mourning his father's death. But sadly, unlike Mephibosheth, who humbly accepted David's kindness because he really couldn't do anything but, Hanan is led to reject the kindness of God's chosen king. So we've got a bit of a chalk and cheese. We've had the nice side of the coin last week. Now we're going to see the ugly side. He's going to reject the kindness of the king. And, and Hanan does it on account of David's good motive being called into question. So continuing from verse 2, when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honouring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard and cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. I, I assume it's very plain to see how this would have been considered a great humiliation. Uh, when I, for some reason, when I imagine these guys with half a beard and their robes cut off, exposing their bare bums, for some reason I imagine they still have their sandals on, which somehow makes it worse. <laughs> Don't you reckon? But there is an extra dimension to the humiliation here, one that we might not get straight away. You see, obedient Jewish men would have been keen to uphold God's law in Leviticus 19.27, which says, do not cut the hair of the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Sounds strange, but bear with me, I'll tell you the reasons for this. It comes shortly after the command, just a few verses, after the command not to wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material, which means it would have been hard for these guys to get easy repairs done, you know, they probably had to get a whole new garment. Now, a really helpful way... To understand the reasoning behind many of the Levitical laws, of which these are just an example, is with this made-up word, singularity-ishness. If you remember our Leviticus series a while ago, I think I threw this one at you. Singularity-ishness, it's a made-up word, but it's helpful, you see. The holy God who will dwell amongst his chosen people is the same yesterday, today and forever. The most important command that God gave is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He does not share his glory with another. He is unlike any other. And so visually and pragmatically, the Israelites would reflect God's character by their, what I call, singularity-ishness. See, they were not to plant two kinds of seed in the one field. They were not to mate two different kinds of animals together. And even their beards and their clothing would have had to be visually uniform, a way that expressed singularity-ishness, an undivided devotion, if you like, to Yahweh, their unique and holy God. David, of course, would have understood, therefore, how offensive the Ammonites' actions were here. 
and how humiliating it would have been to the guys. So verse 5, when David was told about this, he, and this is very kind of him, sent messengers to meet the men for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown back and then you can come back. You see, I bet they'd have been delighted to get this command from their king who rightly sympathises with their predicament. They would look so shameful and so out of place amongst the people of God that he, in love, you know, wants to kind of defend and protect them and not subjugate them to any more sort of humiliation. Now, despite such a blatant spurning of his kindness, there's no indication, there's no indication given that David necessarily at this point would have sought to retaliate. I mean, he may have, but it's interesting that we're not told that. What we are told, what we do know, is that it's actually the Ammonites who take the initiative in escalating the conflict. It's almost as if they might have been looking for an excuse to start an offensive against Israel. So verse 6, when the Ammonites realised that they'd become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth, Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Maaka of the thousand men and also 12,000 men from Tob. You'd think it should almost be, when they realised they'd become obnoxious, they thought we really better think carefully about this and work out whether we should make peace with him. No, no, no. As soon as we're obnoxious, bang, let's get the whole gang together. Here's a rough map, by the way, so you can get an idea of where these nations are. You can see the Ammonites are starting a big gang-up offensive and they're taking people from significantly further away in order to get this sort of big military campaign happening. It's pretty much a textbook case of what Psalm 2 speaks about, which we've seen for a number of weeks, when it says, uh, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's a very practical picture of what that looks like. So, of course, now David has to respond, but even then he doesn't do so in person. Verse 7 On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. Now, we're not told why David isn't personally going out with the army, but when you consider the way that the rest of the narrative kind of proceeds, I think we're right to wonder if David is still, whether it be wittingly or unwittingly, still giving them a chance to make amends. In any event, at first it looks like there's going to be this huge, very difficult two-front battle. Um, you know how in uh, sort of like really epic war scenes in films or like Lord of the Rings, when you see the, so the soldiers kind of preparing for a battle and you always get that awesome music that's kind of like that really rousing. Try not to have that in your head as I uh, read the description here from verse 8, right? Anyway, uh, verse 8, here we go. Here's the description. Here's the build-up. You ready? The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate with the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maaka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. 
But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And then the scene of them, you know, coming together. Anyway. The point is, at this point of the narrative, we are at maximum intensity. And it really does feel like this fight is going to be a close call. You've got Joab, the very successful military commander, saying, if we get overwhelmed, you've got to help. And if you get overwhelmed, we're going to help, right? So what happens after this nail-biting build-up to this massive showdown battle, the big offensive against David and Israel? Well, verse 13, then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realised that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from the fighting, if you can call it that, the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Now, what a B-grade film that would have been. <laughs> Why such an anticlimax? Maybe they realised that David's armies exuded just so much confidence in the fact that God was on their side and They'd been so successful for so long. We don't know. We're not told. But given that we, as the readers, know what happens when people band together against the Lord and against his anointed, perhaps we're meant to see this as yet another chance at repentance before it's too late. See, we know that if David so desires... He can smash them to pieces like pottery, Psalm 2. He can ask of God and God will make those nations his inheritance. And so perhaps we're wondering if they've got a close call, but they've, they've still got time to kind of do something a bit more sensible. It's a bit like how it is actually with God's people today. Our king, of course, Jesus, is remaining enthroned in the heavenly Jerusalem. He's there right now. While we, his people, do battle with the spiritual forces of evil that constantly band together against him, which is why I'm delighted that our current Kids Talk series is with the armour of God. As Jesus' messengers, we come out with the light of the gospel, but his enemies continue to retreat into the darkness because of their evil deeds. Of course, we hope and pray that those outside of Jesus' kingdom would heed the warning before it's too late. We hope and pray they'll repent and recognise they cannot beat Jesus. All they can do, their only hope, is to join his kingdom and to take refuge in him. But the day is fast approaching when it will be too late, when Jesus himself will ride out into battle and will conquer every rebel power. With the passage at hand, we get a little shadow of that happening, don't we? We get a shadow of that, especially in this last section. The enemies who had foolishly banded together against the Lord and his anointed, they persisted in doing so, which means they ended up facing the judgment of the king, finally. So from verse 15, after the Arameans saw they had been routed by Israel, they seriously reconsidered their stupidity. No, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. And by the way, with that map before, Euphrates was even further northeast. It was even further off, right? So even more far and wide to get the troops. Had, uh, had Arameans born from the Euphrates River and they went to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, 
He, notice it's all about him now, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan and went to heal. And the Arameans formed their battle lines, note, to meet David and fought against him. It's very personal now. The king is the one who has gone out to give his conquering judgment. And that's because when you pick a fight with God's people, in the end, you are actually picking a fight with God's king. Uh, it's amazing that uh, the Apostle Paul, once upon a time, that learnt, learned that very vividly, didn't he? Persecuting the Christians, Jesus shows up, why are you persecuting me? So despite all the epic build-up, of course, in the end, there could only ever be one obvious and certain outcome. Verse 18, but they fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He, notice it's still the singular David, he also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals, that is kind of like the, the underlings who had been conquered, all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Hadadezer was the king over Beth Rehob, one of those northern territories, uh, whose army had been hired by the Ammonites to go against David. Hadadezer must have been quite the conqueror himself because he had lots of vassal kingdoms. But here we're told that the rulers of those vassal kingdoms, probably in great disobedience to Hadadezer, made peace with Israel. They actually joined the enemy. They made peace with Israel instead. They knew who the more powerful conqueror really was, even compared to, to Hadadezer, and they knew they'd be better off joining him rather than trying to beat him. So it is with those who come into God's kingdom, by the way, you only ever always leave the kingdom or the dominion of darkness in order to be a follower of Jesus. You don't sit in neutral territory and then you join him. No, no, no. You're against him unless you are for him. So it is with, with Jesus. Now, because they did that, that meant the Ammonites lost the allies that they'd have needed, not now to, to, to do an offensive against Israel, but even just to, to now defend themselves against whatever Israel would choose to do. And it's that detail that makes the very last line of this chapter one of the most tragic and terrifyingly ominous little phrases in Scripture. The last sentence of verse 19 simply reads, so the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. You see, when you understand that in context, when you understand this passage aright, you see this as a profoundly chilling sentence. The feeling this ought to evoke for the Ammonites would be like being put on death row knowing that at any time the jailer was about to come and take you to the execution chamber. And now there is zero possibility of leniency. The Ammonites had willingly and high-handedly spurned the kindness of God's king. They had opportunity to back off, but instead they had organised an even greater offensive now that their plans have failed, they're left depleted and without anyone else to help them. There is absolutely nothing now that can stand between them and the righteous wrath of God's king. 
What makes it so much worse is that they could have accepted his kindness. He'd offered it. They could have had, they could have had the kindness of David. And even after the fact they, 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 they attacked and, 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 and spurned the, 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 the messengers, and then, and then did, even after those two things, they could have repented and sought his forgiveness. But their ongoing steadfast refusal to accept the king's kindness means that they're now all alone and that they know any moment now David will strike them down. And that's, by the way, pretty much what happens in the next verse. We're going to look at 11 next week, but I'm just going to give you a little preview. The first verse of chapter 11 says, In the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. They barely even rate a mention. He just gets rid of them without a second thought. See, far more than the pain or horror of the manner in which death comes to anyone, the absolute worst way to die is to know that even though you've had every opportunity to accept the kindness of God's king, who you know is going to be ruling and victorious. God's made him the king. Even though you've had every opportunity to accept him, you've stubbornly refused. And now, at the point where you realise your complete and utter foolishness, it's too late. When every, every earthly prop has given way, there remains only the fearful expectation of judgment for the enemies of God. You see, those who persistently spurn the kindness of God's king will always, always come to a terrible end. Now I'm pleased to say, and and I can't help but say it, that as you remember this is the second half of the coin that we saw the first half last week, that therefore the converse of this is also true, which we saw affirmed with Mephibosheth and we also see affirmed here for those who made peace with David, namely that those who embrace the kindness of God's king will always, always have refuge in him. It couldn't be more stark, it couldn't be more black and white. We're looking at the uh, 2 Samuel version of Two Ways to Live when we look at chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, if that's the case with King David... How much more so now it must be in the case of God's ultimate son, namely Jesus. Jesus has been raised from death to rule over an eternal kingdom. So how you respond to him not only has earthly but also eternal consequences. Sadly, even though Jesus gave his life to spare us from the righteous wrath of the holy God against our sin, the majority of people, the majority of people will still continue in some form to, frankly, throw the king's kindness in his face. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might not necessarily feel like you're someone who's been as offensive as the Ammonites were to cut those men's clothes and beards, but that's actually the reality. Given how deeply sinful you are and how much it costs Jesus to pay the price for that and the fact that you still as saying, no, no, I'm not going to side with him, I will not take him as my Lord and Saviour, that's profoundly, that's throwing kindness in his face. If that's you, by the way, if you're not yet someone who is a follower of Jesus, be warned, you cannot ever prevail against him. And the time is short before he will return 
And then your position toward him now will become your position toward him for all eternity. Repent before it's too late. Make your peace with Jesus. Say, God, I want to have Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, not as my enemy who will always win. Of course, there are always more subtle ways that people throw the kindness of Jesus back in his face. Some of them are very religious ways that look even very Christian. Uh, I've chatted with a number of people whose firm belief is that Jesus died to pay for sin and that it's up to me to choose with my will and volition to be a good follower of him and his work plus my work together is how I'm saved. Now, you see, that's a dreadful slap in Jesus' face as well. It's, it's just another way of saying what God has done in Jesus was not enough. I had to contribute something as well. There are whole religious systems based on that philosophy. It is a dreadful, blasphemous affront to the kindness of King Jesus. Of course, one of the biggest temptations for God's people today in our world and culture is to fail to be the singularity-ishness kind of people to fail to be undivided and single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. It's so easy for us, given the way our culture thinks about materialism and sexuality, to be partially committed to serving Jesus and his eternal kingdom and to be partially committed to the false gods of materialism and hedonism in this sinful and adulterous generation which is coming to naught. You all know that, you've heard it time and time again, that's the thing we've got to constantly pray about, guard against, Father, please check out my heart if I'm devoted to my comfort more than following Jesus, if I'm devoted to financial security more than treasure in heaven, if my views about sex and sexual morality and immorality are not your views, Father, please fix me, I don't want to be, give me an undivided heart that I will love your word and love your way. For most of us, of course, I assume that here we know the great joy and liberation in having found refuge in Christ and we therefore need the constant reminder to also make sure we don't side with God's enemies. See, we've got to be like those, uh, uh, those soldiers who went, I know we're vassals of Hadadezer, but we actually want to make peace with King David and with God and so we're not going to help those Ammonites anymore. We Arameans, we're, we're afraid to help. We, we don't want to help the enemies of God. We want to join God. Would you believe there is actually a temptation, and I think it's special, especially the case for Christian leaders, so I've got to put myself in this firing line, to have this idea that it's really important for us to win favour with the world that somehow we'll advance the gospel of Jesus by keeping the world really happy with us. You saw it not that long ago in that big um, fiasco about what was the guy in the football club, Thornburn or something, I can't remember, it's old news, yep. And um, there was the, the, that morning show where they had the, the, the rector from City on the Hill Church, it's an evangelical church in Melbourne, and they, they absolutely laid into him. Now, I want to make it 100% clear, I stand with the Christians, I stand with that church, right? Praise God for that rector wanting to get on that show and saying, you know, we, we're, we're standing behind this guy. Full marks. But even then, it seems like the MO was to say, oh, we're all about love and we just want to love people and we want to have to try and sort of appease the angry mob mentality of the media that was coming towards it. It was stupid. 
So much better to say, yes, we do share what the Bible plainly teaches about sexuality and views. And frankly, so do the Jews and the Muslims. And I'd love to see you get an imam on this show and ask him the kind of questions that you're asking me. By the way, so do the majority of people throughout the majority of the world for the majority of human history. So you're the one that's actually got a big issue here, not me. It would have been so much better to not try and be friends with the world, to not side with the enemies of God and stand firmly for King Jesus because that's the way that people actually hear the truth. Otherwise, you just get trampled on by the godless sort of mentality of the world. Uh, Don't help those whom Jesus is about to ride out and annihilate. Flee from her, my people. Get out of there. Stand firm and unashamed in the kingdom of God because that's what's going to be the case for all eternity. None of this worldly foolishness that's coming to naught. With that, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for our risen King Jesus who is and who only ever always will be completely victorious against all the enemies of God. Father, we pray desperately and earnestly for those known to us who as yet remain enemies of your king father by your mercy please change their hearts turn them in repentance and faith before it's too late that they would find refuge in jesus and salvation on the last day rather than face your righteous wrath and indignation at the way that they have spurned his kindness and father may we not side with the enemies of jesus but on account of love and faithfulness and singular devotion to you, call out the stupidity and the hypocrisy and stand firm being proud of Jesus' words that he will be unashamed of us when he comes in his glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.